This is Bella. Bye, bye. Bella, this is Mr. McCandles. Hello, Bella. No! She's an experiment. Good evening. Her brain and her body are not quite synchronized. But she is progressing at an accelerated pace. Tell me, where did she come from? I shall. For it is a happy tale. I am Bella Baxter, and there is a world to enjoy, circumnavigate. It is the goal of all to progress, grow. A woman plotting her course to freedom. How delightful. Welcome to the Strange Harbors Podcast, a weekly discussion of film, television, and pop culture. My name is Jeff Zhang, and tonight I'm joined by... Amir Ture. And Derek Wong. So this week we are catching up on a late 2023 release and getting our ducks in a row for our best films of the year episode, talking about Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things, a raunchy fisheye fantasy starring Emma Stone, Willem Dafoe, Mark Ruffalo, Rami Youssef, and Jared Carmichael. It is the Greek filmmaker's eighth feature-length movie, his last being 2018's The Favorite. A lot of awards buzz around this one. So I think the plan for us is to do this episode. And I think the big one that we're probably going to be missing for the best movies of the year episode at the end of this month is The Zone of Interest, right? I think, Derek, you've seen it? Or have you not seen it yet? I have. And Amir's going to be tough to catch the zone of interest. I don't think it's really playing wide. So I think we can still do our best films of the year episode. And then we'll probably do a zone of interest episode afterwards. And then just have a little asterisk next to your (laughs) list, Amir, and see if it slots into your top 10 when you see it like retroactively, right? I think that's the best way to do it. Yeah, it sounds like it would, but yeah. Yeah. Or it might not affect it at all. Who knows? It might not be. Yeah, it might not crack the top 10. Who knows? I originally thought Poor Things was going to be one of those where it was hard to catch, but it looks like we all saw it. Did we have to go out of our ways to see this one? or I thought I was not going to be able to see it, and then all of a sudden it opened right in my town on Friday. So I saw it in like the early afternoon on Friday. Yeah, luckily, um, this wasn't too hard to find for me. It's playing in a couple theaters in my area, so I was able to watch it. So I saw this in New York Film Festival, and I haven't seen it since. So you guys might need to refresh my memory a little bit on some of the plot points and stuff. I had a really interesting screening experience with this one, because I actually missed the press screening for this, and I wasn't able to secure tickets either, so... I actually went to the standby line and waited like two and a half hours to get into the movie. So what New York Film Festival does is they have a standby line for every public screening. So you can line up. If there's room, they'll let people in the standby line and you fork over like 20 bucks or whatever it is for the ticket and they seat you in that way. So like it's the overflow. 
So I waited like two and a half hours and they cut me off like one person ahead of me. So I was like the second to last person. Person in front of me got cut off too, but he was with another person. They were like friends going to the screening together and they refused to like separate. So they're like, why don't you just take my ticket? Squeezed in as the last person on the standby line to get in. Thanks to these two good Samaritans, I guess. It was quite an experience. I've never had anything like that happen to me before, but it was a very nice gesture from these two guys. That's very <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. How about your theater, Amir? Was there a good amount of people watching this? No. When I went in, there was one person in there and another person entered after me. So I think there was three of us. I thought I was going to be alone. It was like middle of the day Friday, you know, in a small town. Like I was not expecting anyone else to be in this movie. So I was pleasantly surprised it was even three. Yeah. I guess I should say I saw this actually a couple weeks ago because, you know, it released during the holidays and I was able to catch it around that time. And when I went, my theater was relatively full. I wouldn't say it was packed, but there was a lot of people watching it. So it was nice to enjoy this with the crowd. I think we'll get into my theater going experience a little bit later because I do have an interesting anecdote to share. You guys want to talk about Yorgos Lanthimos? Are you guys familiar with his work, fans of his work? I haven't seen all of his stuff, but what I've seen, I've liked. So I've seen this and The Favorite and The Lobster. Out of his more recent stuff, I missed Killing of a Sacred Deer. So I'll have to go back and fill that gap. But, you know, I've seen, what, three of his last four? And I've liked them all. Uh, What about you, Derek? Same. I've seen those three. I've not seen Killing of a Sacred Deer. Just like you, Amir, I've liked them all of varying degrees. And, you know, we could talk a little bit about if we want to do like a little ranking later, but... I haven't seen all of his movies, so it's only really his most recent work that I've really seen. I'm not too different from you guys. I have seen The Killing of a Sacred Deer. I like all of his stuff. I'm a big Yorgos Lanthimos fan. He makes some fucked up movies. And this is not the first time we talked about Yorgos Lanthimos, right? Because I think at least I have The Lobster on my top 25 of the decade from a couple years back. But I've seen Dogtooth. I've seen The Lobster, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, The Favorite. And now, obviously, poor things. So Yeah, it sounds like you hit the big ones. I'd like to see Killing and Dogtooth, and then I'd, I'd probably leave it at that. I don't know if I'm dying to see Alps and Attenberg. And yeah. Kinetta. I'm a big fan of The Favorite, too. That was on my top 10 of 2018. Oh, yeah, The Favorite was real good. I think, in really retrospect, good. 2018 was kind of a weak year, too. Yeah. You want to do a ranking, or...? I would probably go best to worst, I think. Not including poor things. I think we'll leave poor things to the end, maybe. So... Out of the movies that I've seen, I would go best to worst, The Lobster, The Favorite, Killing of a Sacred Deer, Dogtooth. With the caveat that I like all of them. For not doing poor things yet, I mean, the only other two I've seen, I guess, is The Favorite and The Lobster. I do like The Lobster more than The Favorite. So I kind of be with you on that, Jeff, that right now The Lobster would be the top of my choices for your Gothanthamos. I like The Lobster better, even though The Favorite is great. I think it's more cohesive. The Lobster breaks up into these kind of two sort of weird parts, these weird like sections, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if I like that second half as much as I like the first section, but I think the lobster hits close to where I live and the favorite does. I'm going to use your word, Jeff. It's a lot thornier. I think the favorite breaks out of his absurdist, surrealist stuff a little bit. Yeah, it's just a black period comedy, right? Like, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't have any of the surrealist weird shit, which is what I fuck with. So, yeah. yeah. So, as good as it is, 
Yeah. And it is really good. As good as it is, I think it's below the lobster for me. What do you guys think then of his latest, Poor Things? I liked it, but ugh, I didn't like it as much as I thought I was going to, actually. I think for me, this one might slot in as my least favorite of his that I've seen. There's a lot about it that I like, but I think there's some central elements of it that I didn't love. What about you guys? All right. So this movie on paper has everything going for it. A pseudo steampunk Victorian era Yorgos Lanthimos joint where Willem Dafoe plays a mad scientist who transplants a dead woman's unborn fetus brain into herself as like a fucked up Frankenstein pastiche. And like from the director of really twisted movies like Dogtooth, The Lobster, Killing of the Sacred Deer, like I said. And to have it turn out to be mostly pretty agreeable and digestible and actually quite wholesome i don't know whether to be like really disappointed or like pleasantly surprised do you know what i mean i think that's my take on it and it's not quite as thorny as his other movies it's got this textbook intro to feminism and socialism that it's very surface level and doesn't really give you too much to chew on but there are a lot of things that i really liked about this movie but i don't love it as much as maybe some of the other people out there because this is a very substantial critical darling during award season and I'm a little warmer than lukewarm but I don't like it quite as much as other people do. You're colder on it than you expect it to be. I'm in that same I, Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh man, this is like right up my alley and then it just wasn't very challenging to me, I feel. What about you, Derek? What'd you think? So after hearing your guys' thoughts, I probably will say that I'm the most favorable of this movie. I actually really did like this movie a lot. And, and I will agree that some of its themes are a little simple, to put it kind of bluntly. And I do think the middle section is a little weak. You can kind of get specifics. But I think as a performance, Emma Stone is doing amazing work in this. I think comedy-wise, spoilers, if you don't know, there's a lot of sex. There's a lot of nudity. And like a lot of that is... Emma Stone, right? We don't see this from a lot of actresses, especially an actress of her caliber, you know, very versatile in the, the types of movies she does. And this just adds to that repertoire. And I've heard it put this way, and I don't know if I entirely love how it was said. People are saying it's a very brave performance, right, for her to be able to like really expose herself in that way. And I do think this is a very funny movie. I don't think the heartfelt nature of it really bothers me. As much as it might bother you, Jeff, like I actually did enjoy that aspect of this story. Okay, yeah. I think the performances that everyone was praising, they're phenomenal. I don't think there's any hyperbole mm -hmm. going on with giving all these actors and actresses their laurels. I think Emma Stone, like you said, gives a very fearless performance and very funny and very physical. And I think Mark Ruffalo is incredible in this movie. I think he's so, so funny. Yeah. Willem mm -hmm. Dafoe is really good. Rami Youssef is really yeah. good, too. Everyone's really good in this. I really, really like all the performances. It's mostly, like, the story and the scripting itself that I kind of have issues with. But, I mean, this movie looks gorgeous, too. All these fisheye lenses, the bokeh and the shallow focus. It's really, really nice to look at. And it's got, like, this very creative, like I said, Victorian steampunk era fantasy slash sci-fi look to it that... Right up my alley. I love that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
the design of the ship that they're on and like the trolleys in uh, Lisbon, all that stuff really works. And also like the costume design too. Yeah, I was going to say the costume design is great. All that stuff is gorgeous and really like just weird and slightly off. You're like, okay, this is Earth 2. You know, (laughs) we're just on a slightly different – a slightly different, weird, phantasmagorical, semi-Victorian uh, parallel world. Yeah, all that stuff visually works really well. I'm actually not in love with – I get why he did it. I'm not in love with the black and white for the first part. I get it. Okay. I understand why you did it. It's very on the mm-hmm. nose. But I don't know. I don't like it. I mean, it's fine, but it's not like, whoa, you're blowing my mind with this. And it's just such a pretty film when it's in color that I'm not like in love with yeah. that first section. Okay, yes, we get the metaphor, but I'd rather enjoy looking at the beautiful colors of the movie than that kind of monochrome section. Yeah, I think the color stuff really blows you away as soon as the movie opens up like that. And it's by design, right? It's Bella's world opening up to her and the color flooding into the world that we're in. And I get what they're trying to do there. I'm in the same boat. The color stuff just looks so much better that I think the juice of withholding that isn't worth the squeeze, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, this might be a testament of the actual effect itself that I kind of forgot that the first part was not in color until you just said that right now. (laughs) (laughs) Not that it doesn't mean much, like you guys have already said, there is meaning to it, but does it have that impact? I agree, maybe not. Yeah. Do we want to give a quick synopsis before we get too far into like the details and the specifics of the movie? So Emma Stone's Bella, a young woman whose dead body was found outside of the river by Godwin Baxter, Willem Dafoe's mad surgeon character. He finds her body in a river, and she's pregnant, but she's died. So he takes the infant out and puts the infant brain into her own mother's body and resurrects her from the dead with some Frankenstein-y electricity and raises her as his daughter. He himself is the product of some mad science experimentation and abuse by his own father. And he raises Bella as an experiment, but he does love her and is kind to her. And he guides her through the process of learning to walk and becoming an adult human being. But he also keeps her locked within the house and tries to stop her from growing up too fast or being exposed to the outside world. He keeps her locked in the house. His medical student assistant, Max McCandles, played by uh, Rami Youssef, is being used by God to monitor Bella's progress and development. Max falls in love with her and asks for her hand in marriage. They're going to get married, and Bella is growing up rapidly from sort of taut earth child to young teen to naive sort of young adult. And she's discovering sex and sexuality, and she's swept off her feet by Mark Ruffalo's rakish Duncan Wedderburn, who's a lawyer who comes in to actually draw up the marriage contract. He seduces her. She runs away with him with her father's reluctant blessing. And they uh, take off across the world. And the story is about how she continues to grow and develop on this adventure across the world. I guess my first question to you guys was like, did the main conceit of this story kind of work? Like this person who essentially like we see start as a baby then grow into this fully developed woman within i don't know the actual timeline in this movie it only feels like maybe weeks months like a year at most i hated it at the beginning you hated it at the beginning and i liked it at the end so i don't mind the developmental stuff there's a lot of funny comedy out of emma stone acting as a toddler and walking around like someone who hasn't fully developed their motor skills and stuff that stuff was all cool and her tantrums and stuff. All of that was fun. I hated the born sexy yesterday thing. Mm. I didn't really like that Max McCandles, Remy Yusuf's character, 
he falls in love with Heather when she's still sort of, I don't know, not fully baked yet, right? Like she's still sort of a naive, sheltered teenager at that point. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It's a little bit like he's trying to seduce a special needs girl or something. I just thought it was a little distasteful. I didn't like that part. I thought they were going to do something with that. I thought that's the direction the movie was going to go with, considering like Yorgos Lanthimos's other movies mm-hmm. and touch upon, you know, this like fantasy creations, burgeoning sexuality and like her relative youth, maybe like the moral and ethical like quandaries around that and people's attraction to her and the movie never really touches upon that stuff, and it instead is more in favor of, you know, the feminist empowerment aspect, which is fine, but I was expecting them to touch upon that a little bit, and they never really did anything with it. Because they show it to you. It's pretty clearly that she's not fully developed when he starts to fall in love with mm-hmm. her, right? That's very clear, and it's clearly done like that for a reason. I think you're supposed to be uncomfortable. But like you said, they never really go anywhere. They're just like, Man, this is weird. Okay, <laughs> moving on. I don't know if the method of addressing it is for her to go away and develop more as a person with Duncan and then come back as an adult. I don't know. That doesn't even really work because Duncan has sex with her straight away. So th- that that doesn't really, you know. Mm. As an audience member, yes, we have a better understanding of like her stage of development. I mean, to Duncan, he doesn't know any of this, right? And I'm not saying you're faulting the character of Duncan, but are you saying that you think the director should have never made the choice ever had Duncan do that? Um, Duncan is less weird to me than Max because Max is like – He's like he the knows, assistant. Like, he, he knows, knows right? Yeah, Max yeah. is like grooming a special needs girl that he watched grow up or something. Like it's, I don't know. It's a little weird, right? Whereas Duncan is just an idiot and doesn't realize that this girl is special because he's also a moron or doesn't care. I don't know. Would it be accurate to say that you're not annoyed that they did it? You're more annoyed that they kind of swept it under the rug and didn't bring it up at all? Yeah, I don't know. It just bugged me, and if they weren't going to do anything with it, just leave it out if you're not going to do anything with it, right? I guess the discomfort is the point, and, like, maybe that was it. They made the point. They're like, all right, that was it. We made our point about our discomfort with sexualizing a woman, and we're moving on. The sex in the movie doesn't bug me, but just that whole porn sexy yesterday thing bugged me. Mm. But I did like that we got to see her development from naive infant to, like, a canny, intelligent young woman at the end of the film. Emma Stone's so much fun when she's able to be witty and cutting and sarcastic and bitchy. And it's a lot of fun. You know, kind of going back to Jeff's point, though, that this character and Godwin is kind of left off to the side a little bit, right? Like her journey as Bella has to like separate from them because kind of in order for her to develop to the character that she becomes by the end of this movie, she does have to seek a sort of independence, right, from this character. So like in doing so, I think that development with the Rami character suffers because of that. Right. I was going to say, I didn't mind that he was shoved off to the side. I get it. Like, he's there to be there in the beginning and come back at the end. Like, it didn't bug me. He didn't feel as underused to me as Christopher Abbott. Christopher Abbott felt more underused to me than Rami Yusuf. And maybe just because I'm more familiar with Christopher Abbott's work. But I was hoping to get more Christopher Abbott in this movie than we did. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of Christopher Abbott, but I think both him and Margaret Qualley are just pretty much glorified cameos in this yeah yeah mm. for sure i think they did it's like oh hey you know it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. oh hey, hey it's, it's her. them and that's basically it hey it's them right because that's the sanctuary cast yeah right? it is the sanctuary <laughs> cast even though like they don't interact at all in the movie i don't think right no, i don't think yeah. they have any interaction there 
I don't think but, so. Maybe she feeds the goat at the end, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to finish my thought, it is a little strange by the end of the movie. There's a point where it picks up where they left off. It's a little strange, right? You know, she's like, Will you still marry me? He's like, Oh, yeah, of course. Nothing changed for him. It was just a pause in that character's development. And then it just picks up after she joins back into his life, right? Yeah. I liked that about them, though. I was like, Wow, that's cool that you're just like, your wife disappeared, ran off with another man before you could be married, worked as a whore for a while, and she comes back, and you still love her? I mean, I guess that is real, right? He's totally fine with her taking the lead, and Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes that's a relationship you need, right? So, Mm -hmm. I guess this is a relationship where she's going to be in the driver's seat, and he seems totally cool with that. So, good for them. Yeah. Yeah, this movie is definitely a lot funnier than I thought it was going to be. Yes. Yeah, it is funny. Mark Ruffalo especially is like a huge source of humor. He's so funny. Yeah, yeah. He's so good. Yeah, I think Mark Ruffalo is great. I think Willem Dafoe, that bubble thing cracks me up when he just has to take a moment to like release the gas in his body and it just Mm. comes out as this floating bubble. I laughed every time that happened. Yeah, the little world building stuff in this is so interesting and they never explain it and I kind of love that. Yeah. It makes it seem like this fully lived-in, weird, reality-adjacent universe that we're seeing for the first time, and, you know, we're just thrown into it, and we just got to roll with the punches, and it's very inventive, and it's very creative, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, the production design and uh, how this movie looks, and I love the prosthetics on Willem Dafoe. He's so, like, weird-looking. It's good stuff. There's a lot of nice touches in this movie that I appreciated. It's really interesting to me that this story is very analogous to Frankenstein's story, right? Mm-hmm. The funny thing is that he's the one who kind of looks more like Frankenstein than she does. He's the one that looks like he's a little bit pieced together, kind of mutilated. I found that interesting about his character. But then you get a little bit of that backstory, right? Like his father was someone who like experimented on him. And that's why he looks the way he does. And that's why he has to release this gaseous bubble from his body. You know, there's a very tragic nature to that character, which it was very weird when Bella leaves them you know them being the goodwin and max character but then we still as an audience kind of stay with them and i don't think a lot of that works for their characters but you still learn a lot about the goodwin character during that which i did appreciate Mm. speaking of comedy i think the funniest line is when emma stone's character comes back from being a prostitute and she says something to the effect of like oh you're okay with it right i sold my body for like 30 francs and he just says that seems really low (laughs) yeah that was funny i thought that was such a funny line i mean it's not lost upon me that this movie is basically just barbie right (laughs) 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 a lot of it is about empowerment self-actualization a character leaving the confines of this world built for her into the real world it makes for an interesting double feature you like this better than Barbie? What do you think? I don't know. Maybe recency bias? I think I did. The funny thing is I've seen this and then I actually recently rewatched Barbie and I still like Barbie more than this. Really? Okay. Maybe I'm giving Barbie short shrift because it's been a while since I've seen it. There is a dance sequence in this too, so kind of like Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> I think the dance sequence in this is wonderful, by the way. It's yeah. really good. It's a little weird, but also very pleasant. Yeah, but he's into some weird pleasant dancing, right? He does that in The Favorite too, right? There's mm-hmm. some- yep. Yeah. But the dancing is like very anachronistic in that one. It's actually very funny. Yeah. And then I think I alluded to it earlier. I think the middle of this movie is a little, like I said, weak. I'm mostly talking about the stuff like on the ship with the Jared Carmichael character and like before she actually gets to Marseille. I found that stuff really dragging and I don't know Gerard 
Carmichael very well, but I'm sad to say that I don't think he's a very good actor, at least from this role. I did not really enjoy that part of this movie. I don't disagree. I think the middle section is a little slack, and I think that's where a lot of the textbook stuff comes in. You know, the Jared Carmichael character showing the misfortunes of like the lower class, and Mm -hmm. it beats a lot of the points over the head a little too much, I think. At a certain point, you're like, I get it. The movie's a little Twitter brain. It's like, oh, sex workers teaching socialism, you know? Like, they're laying it on a little thick, you know what I mean? And they do say the same things over and over again. So it does get a little repetitive in the midsection of the movie. I do agree. Interesting. So George Carmichael didn't bother me. It was more the end that kind bugged of was you? a little weak to me. It didn't bug me, maybe. But if I was to say like, the weakest segment of the film, I think it's probably still the end bit with Christopher Abbott, no? Oh, I actually really like that stuff. Oh, yeah? I really like she's a very curious person. It should be said that she comes back from being a prostitute. Goodwin Baxter's he's very ill. He's about to die. She comes back to her life there and, you know, she agrees to marry Rami and they are about to say I do. It's a very stereotypical, like, hey, does anyone have anything to say? Well, no one says that, actually. They're about to get married. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. But I'm saying it feels like that moment, right? Is anyone going to say something? And out of nowhere, you know, Mark Ruffalo's Duncan character comes back into the movie and he brings Christopher Abbott Blessington character, you know, who... We are now finding out this person that Bella is, she's the unborn child put into this body. So, like, it's the child's brain in the mother's body, and the mother was married to the Christopher Abbott character. This person is ultra curious when he's like, hey, come back with me. You have a life with me. She's like, okay, I kind of want to go check this out. Like, who I was before I became Bella. I feel like we learn a lot of context in those moments where he's like, let's do our favorite thing and they torture the servants she learns that in her previous life she was a terrible person i do think this speaks a lot to like who we are isn't necessarily um born on us right you know just because her mother was cruel doesn't mean she has to be right even though she shares the same body she's a person that has developed on her own and is making her own decisions and she is choosing not to be her mother she's better for meeting the Goodwin character, meeting the Max character, and like exploring her own consciousness. I thought actually the ending is quite beautiful in that way. Okay. Yeah, there's definitely something to that because I think this whole movie, it's about her curiosity, right? Mm -hmm. And she makes wrong choices all the time. You know, she goes with Duncan Wedderburn and she goes with Christopher Abbott's Alfie Blessington in the end too. But in the end, she makes decisions in favor of herself and of her own development and like you said Derek I think it's kind of like a wonderful arc for this character I do get that it seems to be shoehorning in this mustache twirly Mm -hmm. villain at the end of the movie when it feels like it didn't really need one and he didn't get to do too much with it either so it's just very like I don't know yeah I think just in comparison to, like, Mark Ruffalo, he's kind of a nothing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Wedderburn's like a piece of shit, but the way that he plays off of Emma Stone is so, so funny, where he just eats shit the entire time that he's with her. It's just a different dynamic. She starts out as the naive girl who's been seduced and is being taken on this whirlwind tour of the world, and very rapidly, she, who is still developing, begins to outpace him, and she's clearly Mm -hmm. much more intelligent and more curious about the world, and he's sort of a pretty moron. Uh, mm-hmm. I think someone mm-hmm. calls him at some point. 
Yeah. So she becomes philosophically and intellectually inclined, and he remains an idiot. And he, who was the like rakish seducer heartbreaker, falls in love with her, and she very rapidly comes to see his flaws and is definitely not in love with him. Right. Mm-hmm. So she uses him as like an avenue for experience of the world and maturity, but she definitely isn't in love with him. And so that role reversal is super, super fun and important. I want to go back to one of your points because you had said you thought that the Bella character makes mistakes by going with Duncan and by going with Alfie. But I don't think going with Duncan is a mistake. I think the movie's fully in favor of that. Oh, no. I mean, just because of like what kind of person he is. Okay. Yeah. I guess it's potentially a mistake or it's a dangerous or risky thing. To yeah, do. exactly. I, I, yeah, but yeah. I don't think it's a mistake. I think it's a thing that is looked at as positive and, hey, this is mm-hmm. something that she's doing for her own development. It opens her world up for her. Yeah. Right? I, yeah. I don't no, think I, it's I, – I wouldn't I call it a mistake so much, but uh, – Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I was just going to say that I love the depiction of sexuality in this movie, where it's not something that you really see that often, especially for like female characters, where they have sex and they love having sex, and basically just because it feels good, right? And I think, at least in this Puritan era of filmmaking and movies, where everything's so sexless, and you know, this depiction is very empowering, right? I did like that. Where it's just for the sake of pleasure. Yeah. I'll agree with you. And uh, Yogurt's not the most adjusting to sex. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's just a freaky guy, man. <laughs> he's a horny dude. These movies are horny. Like, even The Lobster, um, which is thoroughly weird, you know, has a lot of explicit sex and sexual stuff in it. So, Oh, and The Favorite, for sure, right? And the Favorite's <laughs> very, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Are we giving him too much credit? Maybe he's just a perv. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> When your movies are this good, you're not a perv, you're an auteur. (laughs) To kind of piggyback off both of your guys' points, I think one of my favorite things, and now I'm going to sound like the perv, is that people are allowed to be naked in this, right? There's actually a lot of nudity in this. And like we don't really see that in a lot of mainstream Hollywood movies nowadays. I mean, I know The Favorite has a little bit of nudity on the Mm -hmm. part of Emma Stone. I mean, she is depicted having sex, exposing her body through a good majority of this movie. And one funny thing that happened during my screening is that I was sitting next to this older couple and by the second sex scene, they just got up and walked out. Like they just could not. I'm out of here. They could not handle seeing Emma Stone having sex. So they made it maybe like 30, 40 minutes into the movie and they're just like, peace, we can't do this. Weak, (laughs) weak. I don't think it's wrong to say that like a lot of these performances are quite fearless. Yeah. It's not just like regular movie nudity. It's all like full frontal stuff in this. There's know? a lot of fucking in like multiple positions. There's a lot of sex in this, especially yeah. between Mark Ruffalo and Emma Stone. There's a lot of that. What does she call it? Furious jumping. I thought that was very funny too. Can we do the furious jumping? <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you guys wanted to bring up? It's a funny, weird movie. And as much as I like said earlier, it's like not my favorite of his. Um, I still had a good time. Yeah, I still enjoyed it. It's still like weird and gorgeous looking and well directed and well acted and funny. Yeah, I'd still say go see this thing. It's showing near you. This is one to watch. If you can deal with the weirdness and deal with the sex of this movie, totally worth seeing. Yeah. I don't like to judge movies on what I think they should be rather than what they are, you know? But this movie is a little bit of like vapor because I expected something a little bit more from Yorgos Lanthimos, I think. Mm-hmm. In a weird Equivalence, I think it's kind of like The Holdovers, where it's just a kind of wholesome movie, despite the weirdness and despite the sex. I think this is Yorgos Lanthimos' most accessible movie. 
Would you guys think so? No, I don't think so. The favorite's not more accessible than this? This is very weird and very sexual. The favorite, sexual, but it's less weird. It's a period piece. It's very grounded. Like, I feel like you could recommend the favorite to a certainly wider audiences than... I don't know. I feel like this is more easily digestible. No way. Than the favorite? Okay, the favorite has maybe, like, the lesbian thing would turn people if people are, like, I don't know, homophobic or whatever. Like, I'm not talking about easier to swallow. I'm saying, like, easier to digest and, like, process its themes, maybe. Maybe I'm not getting what's going on in the favorite, then? I didn't think there was really that much there. It's a pretty straightforward period piece black comedy with some fun political maneuvering and sex, but I don't know what's there to get. I feel like it's totally what it is. I think so, but I think this is as straightforward as it gets, too, I guess. Okay, so I guess for me, they're equally straightforward, but this is weirder, and there's more explicit sex. So I think it's harder to recommend to people. Yeah, I mean, if you're taking, like, accessible, like, you know, I put this in air quotes, as, like, generic term of, well, are people going to, one, you know, understand this, but also, like, agree to not leave a theater? I think that this is maybe more accessible than maybe something like The Lobster, because I think The Lobster is, like, oh, yeah. weirder. You know, I, I can see some people checking out of that really quickly, but... I don't disagree with you, Jeff, that I think thematically this might be a little bit simpler than the favorite, especially with its language, I think might throw people. But I think the most inaccessible thing about this movie is the nudity and the sex, right? Like I saw it firsthand, like these people just like could not take it and they had to leave, right? And the weirdness of the world too, right? I think that's a little bit off-putting sometimes. And I think the distinction is probably between the favorite and poor things. I think if you go through all the other movies that we've seen, you know, The Lobster, The Killing of the Sacred Deer, Dogtooth, those are way less accessible than mm. either of these, right? The favorite or poor things. I don't disagree. If we're trying to create a distinction, I think, yeah, those are the two worth talking about, right? Especially because the favorite was this critical darling a couple years ago and was a big spotlight during that award season. Mm-hmm. Kind of similar to this, right? I mean, this one's getting a lot of buzz. I mean, Emma Stone won a Golden Globe for this, and she might be up for Best Actress for this. So I think, you know, a lot of eyes are on this movie. Yeah, I think she's neck and neck with Lily Gladstone. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, I think she's getting a lot of buzz for this. She was really good, but yeah, I don't know about that one. I feel like Lily Gladstone still got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just because the movies as a whole, like Killers, is so heavy, and this is so yeah. light, and mm-hmm. maybe it's not fair to the performance because she is really great in this. But I can't see giving this to Emma Stone over Lily Gladstone. I prefer Lily Gladstone too, but I probably wouldn't be too upset if Emma Stone one for this. She is really, really good in this. I think the physicality of this performance is just something else. The way she sells the progression from like infancy to young woman in a single performance in a single body is very, very well done. Yeah, but I'm still on team Lily Gladstone, but I wouldn't be upset if she won for this. I am interested to read the book, by the way. So this is based on a novel by Alistair Gray from 1992 so i am interested to maybe check out the source material yeah it might be worth checking out my only caveat on that be it this is such like a visually fun interesting movie i wonder if i'd enjoy the book as much yeah you know what i mean i'm wondering about the fidelity maybe there's something else in there that yeah for sure i'm sure there's other stuff that the movie doesn't touch or cover it seems like we had you know our issues with this movie but we all seem to really enjoy the performances and you know the various aspects of the movie and amir you've given a recommendation i would say i'd give my recommendation if you can find this in theaters this is worth watching 
Jeff, same or no? Yeah. No, no. I recommend. I had a great time with this movie. I just, we say a lot on this pod, like it doesn't really stick to the ribs too much, but great looking movie, amazing performances. I would recommend it. All right. Well, I think that will conclude this week's episode. Jeff, where can people find more of your work? You can find me on my blog at strangeharbors.com. And you can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Strange Harbors. What about you guys? Uh, you can find me trying to seduce alternate Victoriana Emma Stone. <laughs> <laughs> Once she's of mental age, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> clearly. I've already commented on that. My position is clear. <laughs> what about you, Derek? Uh, you can find me at The World's Okayest Photos on Instagram. And, of course, you can find me at The Wrong Daic on Letterboxd. And uh, if you like this podcast, the easiest way to support our show is to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, whether it be Apple, Spotify, Google, or any of the other popular apps. If you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify, please do us a favor and give us a great rating. It really helps to get our voices out to more people. Yeah, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions on our episode on Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things, feel free to shoot us an email at jeff at strangeharbors.com. We like getting listener mail. Sometimes we read it on the pod. And with that, we will see you guys next week. See you next week, everybody. See you guys then.